Well, we're in John chapter 2 this evening, very early in John's Gospel. I'm going to stick a slide up. Do you want to put the slide up? <laughs> now, last week, surprisingly, saw the beginning of spring. <laughs> Fat chance. Now, for the benefit of Monica, who's in Malawi but listens to our sermons. <laughs> who did I say? Oh, Monica. <laughs> for the benefit of Bryony, who we will never forget. <laughs> This week's been a little on the chilly side. And today, driving from Puckle Church towards Westerly, there's just a very small part of the road open, single track between six foot um, snowdrifts. So it's not really spring, is it? But for some, spring ushers in the desire for spring cleaning. Last week, I got all the cushions off our settee and I got to work with a vacuum cleaner and I couldn't believe the muck that was in there. I put that down to our home group meeting every Tuesday. But I've got an unexpected treat for you this evening. The opening lines of Wind in the Willows. Mole had been working very hard all morning spring cleaning his little home. First with brooms, then with dusters, then on ladders and steps and chairs, with a brush and a pail of whitewash. Till he had the dust in his throat and his eyes, and splashes of whitewash all over his black fur. And an aching back, and weary arms. Spring was moving in the air above, and in the earth below and around him, penetrating even his dark and lowly little house, with its spirit of divine discontent and longing. Even Mole <laughs> had a spirit of divine discontent and longing. He wanted to get rid of all the stuff that had built up. And there is stuff in dark corners that shouldn't be there. Stuff that needs clearing out stuff that should go. And when Jesus went into the temple, not once but twice, he saw stuff that needed to be cleared out. Now I wonder if God has a message for us today, because in our daily readings yesterday and today, we've been in Mark chapter 11, and that's the second time that Jesus clears out the temple in the week leading up to his crucifixion. But here in John chapter 2, he does exactly the same thing, but we're here three years earlier. This is the beginning of his ministry. Now, Jesus is furious, furious, really furious. What he sees appalls him, and he's furious. The, pres the, the, the precious, symbolic dwelling place of God, the temple, was supposed to be holy. It was supposed to be separate. It was supposed to be dedicated to God, but instead it's been turned into a market and Jesus is furious. Where's the respect and reverence for God? Where's the heartfelt worship? Where's the recognition that this place isn't just a trading floor? Jesus is furious. When he was insulted, when he was beaten, when he was slandered, he didn't utter a word. 
But when God is dishonoured, he's angered, he's indignant, he's furious. Now, the temple was no ordinary building. From the first days of the tabernacle, God had symbolically set his presence with his people. And finally, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, we have the embodiment of God's presence with his people. As you enter the temple, it was a magnificent building. You'd go in through the Gentile courts, and then there would be a sacred enclosure through which the Gentiles dare not on pain of death enter. And you'd pass through that, up through the beautiful gate, into the women's court. And from there on, you'd go up again through the Nicanor gate into the, into the um, Israel court. That was for the men and the boys. But then you'd go up again into the priest court where the altar was. And then you'd go up again into the holy place where God was seen to dwell. And there in that holy place, there was a curtain. And behind that curtain was the Holy of Holies. The high priest only could go into the Holy of Holies. And then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even when he went in, he had a rope tied around his ankle. So if he collapsed, they could haul him out without having to go in. That's how holy the presence of God was. And God, in doing and setting this up, is making a very serious point about the holiness of his presence. And Israel had lost sight of that holiness. Israel had begun to treat the precious dwelling place of God just like any other. The word holy itself means set apart, but the temple had ceased to become holy, ceased to be set apart. It was treated like any other building, The bricks were there, but they'd lost the presence of God. And when Jesus saw this, he was furious. But Jesus' fury isn't uncontrolled anger. He wasn't losing his temper. When we get furious, we will lash out, won't we? Verbally or sometimes even physically. But in Mark chapter 11, we read that the second time he cleared out the temple, Jesus went into the temple and he looked round and he saw everything. Now we were looking at this passage uh, this week in home group and that word everything struck me. Jesus looked round and saw everything. Nothing escaped his gaze just as nothing in our lives escapes his gaze. Jesus sees everything and he sees the merchants there and the cheats and those who are desecrating God's holy place and what does he do next? He goes to Bethany with his disciples and goes to sleep. Next day he returns and he goes into the temple and he drives out the merchants. He was not acting in uncontrolled anger. One could even say he was acting in forbearance. Because had those merchants recognised Jesus that second time, they may have remembered what he did the first time. And they may have packed up shop and gone out and not faced his wrath. But they didn't reflect. They were slow to look Jesus in the eye. And Jesus cleared them out. So the lesson is where God dwells is a holy place. 
The temple in its current form, we read, had been being built there for 46 years, and it wasn't finished. Think we've had a long building program. Because <laughs> they were going to be at it for another 40 years. And then they finally finished it. And within six years, the Romans would take the whole thing down. God's dwelling place with his people had changed. God's earthly presence had changed. It was no more in that Holy of Holies, but it was in the person of Jesus. Which is why Jesus says in that passage that Mike read, destroy this temple, his body, and I will raise it up again in three days. Because as Paul says in Colossians 2, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And that's why at the crucifixion, that curtain was symbolically torn in two from the top to the bottom. We had Emmanuel, God with us, not in the Holy of Holies, but in the person of Jesus. But it didn't stop there, because for a third time, the presence, the earthly presence of God changed. And it changed at Pentecost. God's presence was no longer in the person of Jesus on earth, but in the person of the Holy Spirit on earth. It was no longer in the Holy of Holies. It was no longer in the person of Jesus. It was now in the Holy Spirit who lives in the heart of every believer. And so we now are the temples of the living God. We don't, as it were, go to worship because God is in us, part of us, and we are part of him. And so just as Jesus was furious that the temple wasn't consecrated to God's exclusive use, so his desire is that our lives too are pure and holy and set apart for his use. And that's why the issue of sin and holiness in our lives is his number one priority. If you ask God today, what's your number one priority? I have no doubt that he would reply in the words of 1 Peter 1 and 16, and he'd say, be holy as I am holy. That's his clear priority for us. And that's how he wants to purify his modern day temple, you and me. He's distraught if we contemplate cohabiting our lives between God and indulgent sin. Listen to what Paul says to, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6 and 19 about indulging in sexual sin. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. This is a very pertinent example of trying to unite our sinful indulgence with the Holy Spirit of God. 
You can't serve two masters. You remember Jesus in Matthew 6 says, you cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Do we feel that tension sometimes that we're trying to serve two masters? Well, it's time for a spring clean. Getting into all those nooks and crannies to get rid of that accumulated rubbish. It's time for a clear out. We all have issues in our lives that we know shouldn't be there. And just as Jesus cleared out the temple, God says to us tonight, clear it out. Get rid of it. Remove it from your life once and for all. Be holy as I am holy. And what's our biggest enemy in doing that? It's what Paul so brilliantly and insightfully preached on a couple of weeks ago. It's the temptation of apathy. We just don't care. That's why Jesus was furious in the temple. They just didn't care. They weren't bothered. They weren't convicted that what they were doing is wrong. They just didn't care. Does that have an echo in your heart sometimes? It's split between God, who you might slightly resent interfering in your life, and your self-centeredness. You're split between the two. You know it's an uneasy alliance, but somehow you just don't care. You're unmotivated to do anything about it. But God's message to us couldn't be clearer from this passage. Wake up. Clear it out. Be repentant. Be sorrowful. Be determined. Be focused. Plead with God for help. We are better off to deal with our sin by responding to his loving invitation, his outstretched arms of love, than having his spirit depart from us. We're better off responding to his call than having to respond to his judgment. So what is it to be holy? What's he calling me to do? How will I be changed? I'd simply say this. It's to order our priorities so that God is first. Order our priorities so that God is first. First in our worship, first in our attitude, first in our time. First with our money. Is there something to which you give a higher priority than God? If you set aside some money, where is it more likely to go? On your holiday? Or on his building project? Does God come first? Holidays aren't wrong, but it's priorities. Once we indulge ourselves as our first priority... Then we are breaking that commandment we just read about. You shall have no other gods before me. And what do you do with your conscience? That part of you when God prompts, him, prompts you by his Holy Spirit. Do you listen to his voice? And do you say, well, with his help, I must change that? Or do you put your fingers in your ears and just carry on regardless? He like that prodigal son who just wants what he can get from his father and then waltzes off to please himself. You see, the outstretched arms and nail-pierced hands long to embrace you. 
They weep for your return. They ache for you to come home. And God doesn't come to us today with a rope tied into cords to whip us into holiness. And thank God he doesn't. Because who could stand if he did? But God wants us to treat our personal holiness as a top priority as he does. So how will I do that? Well, God will touch your heart with his Holy Spirit and he'll put his finger on what he wants you to change, on what he wants you to surrender, on what he wants you to put down. If you want to be theological about it, we call it the conviction of sin. He brings to mind those things and he asks you the question, what are you going to do with that? It's a question he poses each one of us. What are we going to do with that? And we have a choice. We can surrender it, leave it, turn our back on it, walk away never to return to it again. Or we can ignore his prompt and continue to do that which we know is wrong. Do you have a habit tonight that you need to break? Well, bring it to him. Do you have an attitude in your heart which you harbour? Confess it. Have you put yourself on the throne rather than God? Put him first. The wonder of grace is this, that we come just as we are. Sin, our sin and our rebellion might be immense greater than the person sitting next to us could ever imagine or know. And yet God knows. He sees everything. And he loves you as you are. And he accepts the repentant heart. So he calls us tonight to come to him, to lay that burden down at the foot of his cross, to spring clean, to go into those dark and hidden places that we think nobody else knows about or sees. But his Holy Spirit shines a light into that darkness. How do we respond? Let's just bow our heads for a moment of quiet. As God speaks into our heart and our life. As he asks this question, will you make a fresh start? Will you take a clean break? Will you make a covenant with God tonight that you will leave this, not leave this place unchanged? But it takes a decision of the mind and the motivation of the heart. Say, yes, Lord, I will be clean. Forgive me. Restore me. Help me. So what does God put his finger on tonight in your life? In a moment of quiet, listen to his spirit. And respond in your heart. Heavenly Father, I renounce the rebellion in my heart. I renounce the selfishness of my will. 
I renounce the deliberate acts of sin in which I indulge. Wash me clean. Make me holy. Reign unchallenged in my heart. I will serve you and you alone tonight and forevermore. Amen.